Welcome to the Flying Baton, the magical land of beginning band. Coming to you from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, your host, Charlie Nesmith. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Flying Baton. Before we get started, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in and supporting the podcast. We just launched, and I'm really excited to bring you some awesome stuff. I've lined up some incredible interviews for later this month, and I cannot wait for you to hear what our guests have to say. Please check us out on Facebook and subscribe using your podcast app of choice. We're just getting launched. So if you know anybody who could benefit from this type of podcast and this information, please share the show with them. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. So as a band director who is a percussionist, I get asked a lot by my wind band colleagues, why don't my kids want to play mallets? How can I get them to want to play mallets? So the very first question that I ask them is I say, what do you have for your kids to play on? As far as mallets go, what do you have? Because the answer for most middle school band rooms that I've been to is a beat up out of tune xylophone from the 70s and a glockenspiel. Now, I'm a professional percussionist. I've done drum corps. I've done all these kinds of things on mallets. And I don't want to play those instruments either. I own a marimba and I own a vibraphone. I have no interest in ever owning a xylophone or a glockenspiel. I mean, if you're on the right piece, those instruments can be okay. Like if you're playing E.T., I will play that bell part. That's really fun. But most of the time, playing bells is is not super exciting. Now, the xylophone used to be a very popular instrument in pop culture. It had its kind of heydays in like the 20s and 30s. You'd have these xylophone rags um, that people would buy on record. And it used to be a very popular instrument. But that is no longer a sound that resonates with the youth of today. It's very brittle. It has no sustain. It's just not a very inspirational sound. Listen to these following examples. Which one of these would you want to play, right? So you can buy a Musser Synthetic Low A Marimba for about $2,500, which I know might seem like a lot, but it's worth every penny. So do whatever kind of fundraising you can do to get that money and buy it. As soon as you buy a nice marimba, your kids will fight over that marimba, especially the bass end. Like you will literally have to go back there and break up kids from claiming the mallet instruments. They're like, no, I want to play it. No, I want to play it. No, it's my turn. 
it is worth every penny. They will then fall in love with playing because the marimba has such a beautiful sound. It's a deep, rich sound. It has a lot of sustain. And a lot of music that they hear has marimba in it. Just tons of stuff that the kids would recognize. It is a sound that they identify with. Now, after you buy a marimba, you're going to raise $1,500 more, and then you're going to get a nice vibraphone. Now, you don't have to get a vibraphone that's like a professional model. They have what we call non-graduated bars. So all of the bars are the same width. And in a professional model, they have what we call graduated bars. So the bars on the bottom will be like four inches wide, and then the bars at the top will be like two inches wide. So it gradually changes width as you go towards the bottom. And the, the reason why they do this is for volume. So a graduated professional vibraphone will have like a little bit deeper, richer sound, and it will be much, much louder than a vibraphone that has non-graduated bars. But for the beginning band level, you, you don't need the professional one. I mean, if you have the money, great, but you don't need it. So you can get the non-graduated ones and the bar spacing will be about the same as the xylophone. So it should be very comfortable for them. But the key thing about a vibraphone and why I highly recommend it is because not only do the kids love playing it and it's an instrument that they really, really like the sound of, but all of your kids who've had piano experience get to apply their pedaling knowledge and skill to the vibraphone. Now, the cool thing here is both of these instruments can fit multiple students. So I generally put three students on marimba and I put two students on vibraphone and then one of them will be in charge of the pedal. Uh, you can fit two kids on most xylophones as well. So I do that sometimes if, if I'm short on instruments. But yeah, I load up three people on marimba every single day. Another thing that's really great about both marimba and vibraphone is the kids can get a nice full legato stroke and it not break their eardrums. So if they're on bells, they're not really going to be able to get a full 12-inch stroke without their ears bleeding. But on a marimba and vibraphone, you can give them a little bit softer mallets, and they can really dig in. And that's so good for their muscular development and their technique. All right, my next big tip is to set up an odd and even rotation for your percussionist. Okay, so if I have 10 percussionists on odd days, like the first five will play snare, and then the next five will play mallets, and then on even days, they'll switch. So I set this up about halfway through sixth grade. Once they get pretty comfortable with all the percussion instruments, I start this odd even rotation and they are on this rotation until they leave my middle school. So if you start this early and you enforce it every single day, then they just come to learn that this is the law. This is the way we do things here. And then they won't put up a fight about it. Even if they like snare drum better than mouths or they like mouths better than snare drum, as long as you're consistently doing it every day, then they know that's just what we do here and they'll switch every day for your fundamentals block. I'll put a little example in the show notes of what I put on the board to kind of guide them through this process, but I highly recommend doing this because then you absolutely know that they are getting equal time on both instruments. And it also helps with some of the bickering and fighting in the back. Now, I don't specifically say who's gonna be on marimba, who's gonna be on vibes, who's gonna be on xylo for the warm-up exercises, uh, but you can if, if, you know, if you do get a marimba and they want to fight over it, you can certainly dictate who gets to play the marimba on which days if you want. But once you set up that rotation, you can just always put it on your board and then you don't really have to think about it ever again. Now, by the same token, you're going to want to make sure that you rotate them in your concert music. So I try my best if a kid played mallets on one piece of music. When we learn the next piece of music, I try to make sure they're on some kind of drum, snare, bass, or timpani, or toms. And the next piece, I try to put them on some kind of accessories so that we have this like rotation all the time. And then the kids feel like everyone gets a chance to play everything, which is exactly what you want to make well-rounded percussionists. But you have to keep track of it. So this is something else that I put on my slides. Every piece of music we're working on, I have a slide with all the percussion assignments. And I reference that whenever we learn a new piece of music so I can make sure that we rotate everybody. Okay, my third tip for you 
is to make sure you have something interesting for them to do during your fundamentals. Let me tell you about the cardinal sin of long tones. We all know that the best way to warm up your trumpet section is to have them play as fast and loud as possible, right? <laughs> no, absolutely not, okay? What do most band directors do when you're playing long tones? And honor band directors are the worst about this. Um, they, they just tell the percussionists, all right, go on mallets and do some rolls. Well, when a mallet player is doing a roll, they're playing as fast as humanly possible. It's like the worst thing for them to do for warm-up because their muscles are going to tense up. It's going to encourage clenching, and that's going to cause problems with them uh, like down the road. So the percussionist version of a long tone is doing like a legato eighth note stroke. So if you're doing a scale in half notes, right, your mallet players should not be rolling. And they shouldn't be playing half notes either because that's not very challenging for them and it doesn't really help their muscles either. So you can have the mallets do the scale in eighth notes, like hit each note four times while the band is playing half notes so it all lines up. And that way the mallet players are getting a muscular development and workout while the wind band is working on their long tones. Another example is if you're doing your chromatic scale, when I first start my chromatic scale, uh, my kids are doing it in quarter notes. Now for the mallet players, they pick up on that really, really fast because they're just hitting every note from left to right. So for them, I'll have them do double strokes, which you can do on the mallet instrument, and it is still really good for their technique. So they do double strokes of the chromatic scale while everybody else is playing quarter notes, and that way their muscles are still getting developed, and it's a little bit more challenging for them. Now, by the same token, I also encourage you to have really interesting things on snare drum for all of your warm-up exercises, because if you have this odd even rotation, you need to have something on snare drum on pretty much everything except maybe a corral. So each one of my scales, I assign a rudiment to that scale. So we have seven middle school uh, scales in our district. So I assign seven rudiments, one per scale. And whenever we play the E flat scale, I know my kids are going to be playing paradiddles on snare drum. So they always line up. I'll put an example of that uh, in the show notes as well. So you can check that out. If you're doing like a slow chromatic scale, like in quarter notes with a band, you know, you can have your snare drummers do some sort of buzz roll exercise. So that'd be pretty cool. Now, if you're not comfortable writing these things yourself, just call your local percussion guy or your local drumline instructor and say, hey, here's my fundamentals exercises. Could you write some really interesting mallet, snare, and timpani stuff to go with this? And they would love to do that. They'll probably do it for free. Or maybe you can pay them in some sort of adult beverage. But you should totally do that. And then you can bring it back to your kids and they'll have something really interesting to do during the warm-up block. And that will make the whole rotating between snare and mallets much more interesting to them, and they'll be much more engaged. All right, my fourth and final tip is to get into the percussion section. Don't just stand on the podium. You have no idea what's going back there when you're on the podium. Okay, you got to go stand next to them. Go stand like on the side of the room and look down the row, and then you can see what are their stick heights like? What are their playing zones right? Heck, sometimes I go back there and I see like two of them don't even have music and they're trying to play everything from memory. I wouldn't have known that from the front. I just maybe would have thought they were being bad that day, like they're playing poorly. But in reality, maybe they don't have their music. So it's really important to get back into your percussion section and see what's going on. You can always check playing zones. That is the tone production of the most of the percussion instruments is just where are you hitting it? So for the mallets, make sure they're hitting it either in the center of the center of the bar or on the edge of the bar, but not where the rope goes through the bar. And then for snare drum, you wanna make sure they're not playing in the middle of the snare drum. That's okay for marching band, but for concert band, they need to be off center to get a nice, even smooth sound on the snare drum. 
And for timpani, you need to make sure they're playing a few inches from the edge and not towards the center because in the center, it kind of sounds a bit like a cardboard box. So if you're on the podium, you can't see any of this stuff. So you got to get back into the percussion section so you can see what they're doing. And while you're back there, give them a ton of feedback. Okay, and these could be constructive things or these could be positive things. Like tell your snare drummers, hey guys, great stick heights on this exercise. Or tell your mouth players, that was really smooth strokes right there. Or like, you know, give them something constructive. Like, okay, your left hand is four inches lower than your right hand. Let's see if we can even that up. But you got to give them some kind of feedback when you're back there. If you don't give them any feedback at all, positive or negative, even if they're playing really well, they're going to start to get bored and they're going to start to tune you out. And we all know that a bored percussionist is a band director's nightmare. Now, even though I'm a percussionist, I struggle with this too. Like, because when you're on the podium, like you just, you hear all the band things, you know, you hear all the articulations and the, and the dynamics and the tone quality. And you're so wrapped up in the band sound and tweaking the band sound that it's easy to just kind of ignore the percussionist unless they're playing like wildly out of time or, or insanely loud. It's easy just to kind of tune them out but you, you have to force yourself to always give them something constructive. Now, to go along with that, if we're playing an exercise and you want to hear each section of the band play it, like say you're doing some lip slurs or something like that, and you want to hear the trumpets do it, and then you want to hear the trombones do it, and then you want to hear the woodwinds do it, I have my percussionist play with each of those groups just to keep them involved, but also to give the wind band players like a, a rhythm reference. So I'll say, all right, trumpet and percussion, play lip slur number one. Okay, flute and percussion, play lip slur number one. So this way you keep them engaged and you keep them active. And you may not actually be listening to the percussionist in that moment. You know, you're listening to see if your brass have a really smooth lip slur, but your percussionists are doing something and they're active. All right, so let's recap. How can we get our kids excited about mallets? Number one, make sure they have a quality instrument to play on. I'll put a link to some in the show notes that are inexpensive, but really good. Number two, set up an odd even rotation with your percussionist for your fundamentals block between snare and mallets. And by the same token, make sure you're also rotating them through all of your concert music. Number three, make sure you have something interesting for them to do during fundamentals, not just rolling on the mallets. That is like, it is an important skill, but I would maybe have them do that while you're doing lip slurs. And, and not for your long tone exercises. And number four, get into the percussion section so you can see what they're doing and give them lots and lots of feedback so they feel like a valued member of the group and they feel like you are listening to them and you're actively paying attention to them. Hopefully this information will help out your program. Check out the show notes for more examples of some of the things that I've talked about. You know what time it is. Beginning this week's pick is Creepy Crawlies by Michael Story, published by Belwyn Mills. Now, some composers, when trying to appeal to the young beginning band student, they give their pieces like excessively playful and ridiculous titles like Flaming Dragon Biceps. And the title may or may not have anything to do with the actual music. Actually, as a side note, if any composer is going to write a piece named Flaming Dragon Biceps, it's going to be Randall Standridge, and it's going to sound amazing. Randall, if you're listening, let's get on it, man. But Creepy Crawlies tells an epic tale of a bug's life, and it does such a good job with the programmatic elements. It starts out with this minor, creeping melody that has a really good mix of slurs and staccatos that you could just picture a bug crawling along on its day.
pedagogically, this is great for those first year students to go back and forth between slurring and staccato. Now, towards the middle of the piece, the low brass take on the main melody and the trumpets pop off their mouthpieces and buzz to emulate the sound of the bug. Then there's a tragic accident where the bug is squished and a short funeral is held in its honor. Now, this piece sits perfectly in the first year of pedagogy. It works slurs and staccato, dynamics, lots of concert A flats, and it's a great way to encourage your brass to buzz as well. If I had only one complaint about this piece, it would be that the mallet part is extremely easy and has a lot of rest. So I typically give my mallet players the flute part so that they have more notes to learn. Most importantly, the students really love this music, and with stomps, buzzing, and an epic tale of a bug's life, the audience enjoys it as well. The range is very comfy. Uh, pretty much everybody fits into the first six notes of the C minor scale, and there is only one part per instrument. I'll include links in the show notes to where you can buy this piece and listen to it in its entirety. This has been... Beginning Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Please share the podcast with somebody who you think may enjoy the content. I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Flying Baton. Remember, may your tone be dark and your humor light.